0: Across the last two weeks, our second scripture lesson has come from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Last week, we had a short and poignant story about the mustard seed and about trusting God and what that might look like as we seek to live our lives. Today, we are still in uh, chapter 4, but the energy has shifted from Jesus teaching parable after parable after parable to this Listen, on that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. So there are two stories in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus shows his total mastery of the sea. There's this one of Jesus stilling the storm and then a few chapters later in Mark 6, there's Jesus walking on the water. That the story is set on the sea is significant in many ways. The sea here, the sea, is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus lived and taught. Jesus helped and healed in a certain region, mostly on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. So this is where the crowd is and he said, let's go across to the other side, the north side of the Sea of Galilee. The sea here is more technically a lake. It's a big, freshwater lake. It is 12 miles long. It is 7 miles wide, so that's big, but it's not huge. It's not like Lake Michigan or Lake Malawi, these lakes that you can see from any satellite. It's the Sea of Galilee. The key point here, Is what the sea represents. Think back to the opening lines of the Bible. The very first words in the Bible, in Genesis 1, when the earth was still void and formless, Genesis 1 says, Darkness covered the face of the deep, meaning the sea. Then God's Spirit swept over the waters, it says, and the first act of creation follows. The deep, the dark, the waters, the sea, was the primordial force that God put in order. Out of order, out of chaos, God brings order. This is what God does. Chaos, order. Order. Genesis chapter 1. Then in various places in the Old Testament, the sea, the waters can become powerful and threatening again, needing God's order and action. You probably remember God keeps acting and putting them in order. God parted the sea in Exodus to give people safety and freedom. In various psalms, including the one we read today, God masters the deep, God masters the dark, God masters the waters, God masters the sea. And all through the Bible, the sea can become a genuine threat, a powerful and frightening force, even sometimes associated with evil and monsters. It's in the Bible. But what remains consistent in the scriptures, consistent, The seas are strong. The seas are frightening. The seas can threaten us. That can bring uncertainty. Yet always, always, always God reigns over the seas, which is the message for our lives, which is the message for our faith. God prevails over threats, darkness, dangers, the seas, the storms. This story in Mark's gospel is especially vivid and especially memorable in reminding us of that message. The scene is full of fear. It's evening, which means it's dark. The disciples are on the sea and the storm comes up. Most of us can envision this. Waves crash into the boat. Swamping it, it says. It's already swamped, it says. Again, vivid imagery in this story. Fearing that they are in mortal danger, they cry out to Jesus. And if it couldn't get any worse, where is he? In the stern, asleep. Do you not care that we're perishing here? That's what they asked. That's what they screamed. So there's a storm on the sea, and as it can easily happen. There's a new storm in the boat. One storm is enough. Now with this second storm, the disciples are yelling at their master. You know what? When tensions arise and we get afraid, we go off on each other. Two storms now. On the sea and in the boat. Awakened by all this, Jesus deals with the real storm. Jesus rebukes the wind and silences the sea. And then he addresses the second storm. The disciples. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? See, fear and lack of faith, they often go right together. Also, faith and courage go together. That's what Jesus keeps teaching us. These are the main points of Uh, the story. So did it really happen? Can anyone really calm waters and still the storm? Who knows? But here's what we do know. The truth. Nothing is too much for God. God rules and reigns over all things, especially the things that threaten. This is what Jesus shows us. Over the storms, over the seas, anything that threatens our lives, Jesus shows us God reigns. That's the truth. That's the promise. And the question is always before us, how then are we going to live? How are we going to live with that truth? Interestingly and importantly, The language here of rebuking and silencing the sea is the exact same language and the same result found earlier in the gospel in chapter 1 when Jesus rebuked and silenced a demon. The main message here intends to show us something very important. God, not demons, remains in charge. This is a critical message. We all got demons. God, not demons, remains in charge. And then with the same scenario, same language, God, not storms, however they come about, because they're going to come about, God remains in charge. Jesus stills the storm. Jesus rebukes demons and storms. That's the promise. That's the truth. Can you believe this? Can you? Today? Can you believe this? Jesus wants us to live by faith, not fear. Our lives are secure in God. That's the promise. In God's care, in God's presence, that's the promise. Then, there's something even more interesting about this passage. After he stills the storm, with all when all is calm... When Jesus says, why are you afraid? Do you not have faith? You still have no faith? He uses the Greek word delos, which gets translated here as afraid. Why are you afraid? But the more familiar Greek word for afraid and for fear is phobos, which gives us the English word phobia, which is fear. He didn't use that word. He uses the word Delos. And actually, Delos appears only a few other times in the New Testament, and the more appropriate translation is not fear. It's the sermon title. Cowardly. Most often, it's translated cowardly. In other words, Jesus wakes up. Jesus rebukes the wind and says to the sea, Peace be still. And there's dead calm on the sea. And after all that, Jesus turns to his mates and he basically says, why are you so cowardly? That is a stinging question. It feels different than why are you afraid? Why are you so cowardly? See, fear is natural Fear can even be helpful. Fear can save our lives. Jesus doesn't call it fear here. Why are you so cowardly? The other place that the word delos is used and gets used is Revelation 21 verse 8. And the cowardly are at the head of the list of those who do not make it into the promised reign of God, the kingdom of God. The top of the list is do not make it is cowardly. Delos. Some people are too cowardly to proclaim the joy and light of the kingdom of God. Some people are too caught up in themselves to participate in the kingdom of God. Some people, cowardly, delos, are so taken with their own plans and their own pursuits that they miss out on the presence and the possibilities That God is bringing into the world. Delos. Cowardly. It's the worst trait of a disciple. Cowardly. Why are you so cowardly? I got to give my friend Brian Blunt credit for this. He shared these insights at the APSE conference a couple years ago. Powerful insight on this passage. Why are you so cowardly? Or why are you letting the storms... Get the best of you. Our faith is in God. God rules over the storms and the sea. That's been the message from the first verse of Scripture. God rules over the threats, the dangers, the seas. Jesus is saying, why are you so cowardly? When are you going to get this? That is always a question for our lives. Why are you so cowardly? When are we going to get it? And it certainly applies to us today as we mark World Refugee Day in the church. Could that topic ever be more pressing? Could it? World Refugee Day has been on the church's calendar for a long time. That's because life is harsh and life is complicated and there are more than 22 million people around the world forced from their homes in fear for their lives due to war, or natural catastrophe, or persecution, or fear of persecution. We pray for the displaced people who fled countries like Syria, and Iraq, and South Sudan, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Venezuela, and El Salvador, and Honduras, and Guatemala, and the list could go on. We pray for the five million Palestinians who are in Refugee camps in Gaza and in the West Bank and in Jordan. We pray for our government. We pray for all governments of all countries all around the world not to be discouraged but to work together as one global family for the humanitarian needs that become crisis in the world, refugees on the doorstep. More recently, we all know the situation in. The southern border here about the separation of children from parents. We know about this week's executive order. And clearly, clearly, we're a long way from getting this right. Here's maybe something you don't know. The United States Citizenship and Immigration Services issued a new mission statement in the last few months. The new mission statement, probably not a surprise, eliminated words that had celebrated, quote, America's promise as a nation of immigrants. And the word changes marked a major turn inward. Gone were the words of a generous welcome, as America is a place of providing, America is a place of granting and promoting and understanding, and in their place, came verbs of demarcation and fortification like safeguarding and protecting Americans, obviously, and securing the homeland. The shift is clear. It's time to focus more on keeping immigrants out than on allowing them in. So the recent weeks, we've heard the anguish cries of separation. We've all had a sense of pain and Shame about this in our hearts, perhaps. All of this flows from this change mission statement and cruel practices, and we can all decide who's to blame. But this all relates to our passage. It relates to our passage about Jesus in the boat and Jesus stilling the storm and Jesus asking those questions. Sometimes it's fear. And sometimes it's cowardly actions. Jesus wants us to live with conviction and courage and compassion and care, not cowardly actions. That's the constant message of the whole Bible. The whole Bible. We should certainly remember this piece of information. Only once in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is there a command to love your neighbor one time. Leviticus 19:18 more than 35 times these same scriptures say love the stranger why the emphasis on the stranger well maybe it's because of our inclination toward delos cowardly maybe it's because we 're easy to love the neighbor, you know what? The neighbor looks like us. The neighbor talks like us. The neighbor is familiar to us. The neighbor speaks like us it's easy to love the neighbor. The scriptures teach us to love the stranger over and over again. We have to learn to love the stranger if we 're ever going to get to a more wholesome and hopeful world, the kingdom of God so that 's being in question. Of to answer with our very lives. Why are you so cowardly? Think about it. I've been reading a really interesting book lately. It's by psychologist and speaker Brene Brown. The title of the book is called Braving the Wilderness and the subtitle of the book is The Quest for True Belonging. Brown suggests that in our season of polarized politics and increasing viciousness what we all are most desperate for is a sense of belonging a sense of belonging so she has a chapter in this book that is, has this name people are hard to hate close up, move in people are hard to hate close up, period, move in in the chapter she writes about dehumanization dehumanization is such an easy inclination for all of us once we dehumanize people she says we develop an, an enemy in image enemy image once we see people on the other side of a conflict on the other side of a fence on the other side of a wall on the other side of an issue we start to see them as inf- inferior and even dangerous and this has happened all through our history fueling human rights atrocities, fueling wars, causing genocides, and more. Dehumanization makes slavery and torture and human trafficking possible. Here's what Brene Brown says. We must never, ever tolerate dehumanization. When we engage in dehumanizing rhetoric or promote dehumanizing images, we diminish our own humanity in the process. When we reduce, she says, Muslim people to terrorists or Mexicans to illegals or police officers to pigs, it says nothing at all about the people we're attacking. It does, however, say volumes about who we are and the degree to which we are operating in our integrity. Our faith asks us to find the face of God in every person we meet. And when we desecrate their divinity, we desecrate our own and we betray our faith. We can never let our fears lead us to cowardly actions. Certainly you've heard that wonderful, beautiful quote by Dr. Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King says that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Here's what singer and songwriter Bruce Springsteen recently adds to that quote. And I'm quoting him. I've lived long enough to see that in action, this bending of the moral arc of the universe. I've lived long enough to see that in action and to put some faith in it. But I've also lived long enough to know that arc doesn't bend on its own. It needs all of us leaning on it, nudging it in the right direction day after day. You've got to keep, keep leaning. Jesus never allows the fears the storms, to prevail. God prevails. And God is always at work and present in our lives and in the world. And we live by faith, not fear. We live with courage and compassion, not cowardice. Here's what the Apostle Paul says, how to live by faith and how to lean into that ark. It's in Romans chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and extend hospitality to strangers. May it be so. Hallelujah. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we seek the love, and grace. We seek the generosity and the welcome of Jesus Christ our Lord. Show us that way today, tomorrow, forever. Amen.